0: at the majesty in the sky and no, there is a creator god but for all that that picture says it can't answer the question what is that god like who made all these things what's his name how can i know the god who made that and what does he want? For all that picture says, there is so much that it doesn't say. But what Psalm 19 reveals is that the creator has spoken. And he has spoken a message greater than the message of the skies. The creator has told us. How we can know him. And he has told us how we can glorify him. This is the central message of Psalm 19. The creator has told us how we can know him and glorify him. We're going to see that message on display as we walk through the different movements of Psalm 19. As we do, first we are going to see in verses 1 through 6 the sky's words about God. And I want Psalm 19 to invite us to hear the sky's words about God. Psalm 19 first invites us to hear the sky's words about God. Look at verses 1 and 2 again with me of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Knowledge. So David refers to the heavens. And specifically here, he is talking about uh, the sky, the, the, the place that God carved out in his universe to house the sun and moon and stars, among other billions of wonders. But he looks at the heavens, and he says the heavens declare something. They are communicating. They're speaking a message in fact, he even says that they are communicating knowledge. There is information that the skies are communicating. And the message that the heavens are communicating, that they are declaring, is the glory of God. The glory of God. Glory is one of those church words that Christians often say, but if you actually had to ask someone, what does glory mean? Give me a definition of glory. A lot of times we're a little foggy on how exactly to put into words what glory means. Well, I like how John Piper defines the glory of God. He says, the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. I'll say that again. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of His manifold perfections. In other words, the glory of God is more than just one of His attributes. It's not like the glory of God and other things. The glory of God is the, the greatness, the beauty of everything that is glorious and wonderful about God and the the totality of that greatness and beauty. So uh, a few weeks ago, or a while back, uh, Alyssa found this recipe for these street corn chicken tacos, and we made them, and they were absolutely out of this world. I mean, you you take a bite, and it was just like mind-blowingly good. And if I wanted to describe to you how good they are. I could tell you about the grilled chicken, the 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 marinade, the the char from the grill, the juiciness of that tender meat. Or, or I could tell you about the, the 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 grilled corn and jalapenos and cilantro and lime juice. Or I could tell you about the the spicy sauce that Goes on top, or I could tell you about the avocado or the corn tortilla. I could tell you about any one of the individual ingredients, which were all each by themselves delicious. But it was when all of that came together into the perfect bite that there was something that went far beyond just a delicious piece of chicken or a delicious piece of corn. It was this glory of the whole greatness of this dish in one bite. Well, likewise, God's glory isn't any one of his attributes. It's not one attribute among many. It's the beauty, the fullness, the greatness of all that he is. It's the beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. And what David hears when he looks at the sky is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. This is a message that is spoken. It's knowledge communicated. It's communicated around the clock. David says day to day and night to night. There is never a time that this message is not being broadcast. Furthermore, it's a message that's not just heard around the clock. It's a message that's heard around the world. Look at verses 3 and 4. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Every inch of the globe receives the broadcast of this message. There is not one place on earth that doesn't hear loudly and clearly the message of the glory of God, the beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. As David recounts this, he then in verses 4 through 6 gives a vivid illustration, a specific example of how this works. And the illustration he chooses is the sun. Look at verses 4 through 6, the end of verse 4. In the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So David specifically hones in on the sun, the way that the sun declares the glory of God. He compares the sun to a groom who emerges after being fully decked out for his wedding day. He compares the sun to an Olympic sprinter racing from the starting line to the finish line. And in all of this, he says that the sun covers the entire world with its heat. There is not one inch of the world that does not get hit with the heat and light of the sun. And likewise, there is not one person on the globe that doesn't receive the message of the skies that God is glorious. The sky communicates knowledge about God. But this knowledge is limited. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. As we said when we started, the message of the sky is enough For us to know God exists. But the message of the sky is not enough for us to know God. It's enough to tell us that God exists for us to know that he exists, that he is glorious. But it's not enough for us to be able to then know this God. Look at Romans 1 and verses 19 and 20. For what can be known... God's invisible attributes, that which, that which we cannot see, we can know through that which we can see, his creation, the heavens and the totality of his creation. Paul here reiterates what David says in Psalm 19, that indeed God's creation communicates, it broadcasts a message, and this message has been clearly perceived and universally understood. But what Paul uh, helps us see is the way in which this message is limited. There is a specific message uh, that the skies communicate, that creation communicates. uh, And the way that Paul outlines what this message is, is that there are two attributes that we can know just by listening to the message of the skies. First, that there is an all-powerful creator, his Eternal power is put on display to see the majesty of the heavens, to see what it must take to be the cause that would cause the effect of creation that can only be explained by absolute power. We can know from the heavens that God is an all-powerful creator. But then second, we can know that he is unlike his creation, that he has a divine nature, Everything that we see is creation, and therefore this God who created it must be different. He must be uncreated. He must be divine. So for all that the sky does tell us about God, this information is limited. We can hear his glory declared, but we can only know so much about this God. Uh, I'm going to give another food illustration, if you'll forgive me with it being so close to lunch, but... Let me just illustrate this. So, uh, before Alyssa and I were married, uh, she had a roommate who brought home this uh, leftover spaghetti and meatballs that was made. It was homemade by this like Italian grandma who had like the family recipe that had been passed down from generations. And so we we uh, heated some up and we ate it. And I can't put into words how delicious this dish was. I mean, I've had spaghetti and meatballs before, right? So it was familiar. It wasn't like it wasn't spaghetti and meatballs, but it was unlike any spaghetti and meatballs I had ever had in my life. Um, And so ever since then, Alyssa and I have tried to figure out what was the secret, like what was it that made this so Much better, I mean, head and shoulders above any other like spaghetti sauce that we've ever tasted before. Because you know, there's some ingredients that are obvious, like you know, tomatoes, it's red, okay, check. Um, You know, garlic, yeah, that's in there, but we just, I mean, ever since years later, we still can't figure out what was it that made this so delicious. Well, like it was obvious to us that this was delicious. So the sky's message is obvious. It's obvious from the sky's message that God is glorious. We know he is glorious. And just like some of the ingredients of this sauce were obvious to us, so there are certain attributes of God that are obvious to us just by hearing the message of the sky, his eternal power, his divine nature. But just like we can't for the life of us figure out the exact recipe of this sauce So you and I can't know God in his fullness just by listening to the message of the sky. Of course, then that demands that we ask, how can we know this glorious God that the heavens speak about? How can we glorify him like the heavens glorify him? Well, in order to do that, we must have more than the sky's words about God. And by God's grace, we do. Consider the second movement of Psalm 19 and hear God's words to his people. Turn back with me to Psalm 19. We don't just want to hear the sky's words about God. We must hear God's words to his people. In verse 7, David shifts from universal cosmic perspective to personal, intimate. In verses one through six, David tells what the heaven's message is to the world. In verses seven through nine, David tells what God's message is to his covenant people. He moves from this universal wide, broad message to a very intimate, specific message. God, the God who created the universe, the God whose glory is put on display in the universe, has chosen to make himself known, to speak to a people. We, we see even this shift from the universal to the personal in the words that David chooses to use in Writing this song. In verse 1, he uses the word translated as God. It's the Hebrew word El. It's just kind of the generic word for a a deity, uh, a a divine figure. But in verse 7, when he uses the word which is translated Lord and with small capital letters, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's the personal name. Of God, It's the name that he revealed to Moses, the name that he revealed to his covenant people. It speaks of who he is and how he reveals himself personally to his covenant people. And as David discusses uh, the word of God and what he says to his people in verses 7 through 9, he tells us about six blessings of God's word. Six blessings of God's word. First, God's perfect will restores. Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That word law is the Hebrew word Torah, and it refers to the totality of God's revealed will. Everything that he has revealed about what he wants to say, what he uh, sees, what his will is for his creation. And David says that his law, his Torah, his revealed will is perfect, blameless, whole, complete. It it has integrity. In other words, all the pieces fit together. When you take everything that God has revealed about his will, there are no contradictions. There are no gaps. There are no holes. It is whole, complete, perfect, blameless. And the effect of this perfect will is is that it restores, it revives. Because of our sin nature, we are constantly in need of some kind of repair. And God's word, his perfect, blameless, complete will, brings the restoration that we need. God's word tells us how we can be forgiven of our sins and cleansed of our unrighteousness. God's Word leads us in repentance, in restoring us. God's Word heals our wounds. It revives lifelessness. It refreshes the weary. It returns us to where and how we ought to be. The blameless law of God, the blameless Torah, restores God's people to a place of being blameless. This word that has integrity where all the pieces fit together leads to a life where all the pieces fit together. God's perfect will restores. And then second, God's trustworthy testimony gives wisdom. God's trustworthy testimony gives wisdom. Look at the second half of verse seven. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. When you see that word testimony, I want you to picture God on the witness stand telling this is how things are, this is what is true, this is what is not true. And that testimony that God gives about the world, about reality, it is sure. It's trustworthy. And the effect of God's trustworthy testimony is that it gives wisdom even to the simple, even to the inexperienced the person who has God's testimony about what is true and what isn't true that person if that is all they have they have more wisdom than the most educated or accomplished person without God's Word God's trustworthy testimony gives wisdom third God's straightforward expectations produce joy. God's straightforward expectations produce joy. Look at verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. That word precepts refers, refers to God's covenant expectations. When God made the covenant with the people of Israel, he gave in that covenant promises about what he would do for his people. What they could expect from him. But in that covenant also, he gave expectations for the people, what he expects of them. And his covenant expectations are referred to as his precepts. Here's what God is looking for from his people. And David says those precepts are right, they're straightforward, they're not crooked. In the effect of giving his people right. Straightforward expectations is joy. You know, few things are as frustrating in a leader as unclear expectations. But when the one who is leading you gives clear expectations of what they are looking for from you, it gives freedom and joy. And that's what David celebrates in God, that he is giving straightforward expectations in his word. Number four, God's radiant command enlightens. God's radiant command enlightens. We see this in the second half of verse 8. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The word commandment is very straightforward, it just means anything that God has commanded. And David says that his commandment is pure or radiant, that it shines the splendor of his holiness. And the effect of this radiant command is it produces light. It cuts through the darkness of confusion about life, and it cuts a clear path that God's people are to follow as they seek to live in a way that honors him. Number five, fearing God is timelessly pure. Look at verse nine. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. So David Uh, makes a little change here in the pattern that he's following. And instead of giving another synonym for the word of God, he refers to a response to the word of God. The appropriate response to the word of God is to fear God, to provide or to to offer reverence to God, to honor him. And David says that the fear of the Lord is clean or pure, that fearing the Lord is, is the pathway to moral purity. And he says about the pure path of fearing God that it endures. You know, fearing the Lord, walking in a way that is pleasing to him, may go in or out of fashion with the world, but in no era will we ever be corrupt by fearing the Lord. Voices around us might say, you're immoral, you're wrong you're backward. But before God, if we walk in the fear of the Lord, we will never corrupt ourselves. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And finally, number six, God's faithful rulings are just. We see this at the end of verse nine. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. His rules are his judicial decisions. So earlier I I told you to picture God on the witness stand. Now I want you to picture him as the judge behind the bench. His rules are his judicial decisions. And what David says about these is that they are true, faithful. God is loyal to the absolute standard of right and wrong, which is his very character and nature. He's loyal to his law. This judge cannot be swayed or corrupted. He can't be bought off. His rulings are faithful and they are righteous altogether. The rulings that we receive from this heavenly judge are never unjust, always righteous. So David just Peppers us with blessing after blessing after blessing of the word of God, of what God has said to his people. And the amazing thing is this God whose glory is declared by the heavens, this God has spoken. He's spoken wonderfully. He's spoken in a way that restores, that gives wisdom, that gives joy, that enlightens, that leads to purity, that is just. These are the blessings of God's word. The blessings when God opens His mouth and speaks to His people. This is how glorious His Word is. And so then it just leads to one last question, which is, how should the one who wants to serve this glorious God respond to His perfect Word? As we go to this third movement of Psalm 19, I believe the message that Psalm 19 invites us to hear is, live by God's word for his glory. We want to hear the sky's words about God. We need to hear God's words to his people, and then we need to live by God's word for his glory. We see this in verses 10 through 14. In verses 10 through 14, I see four responses to God's word. Four responses to God's word. First, value God's word value god's word look at verse 10 more to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb god's word is more valuable than all the riches of this world god's word is more valuable than all the riches Of this world? Do you value what God has spoken? Do you want God's word like you want money? You know, it's not just the rich or the greedy who want money, most people want money just to make a living just to keep food on the table, to survive. Do you desire God's word like that? Do you desire God's word like your life depends on it? Because it does. God's word is more valuable than the riches of the world. And not only that, God's word is more satisfying than the most enjoyable sensory experience. Now, David specifically mentions sweet honey here, but you could fill in the blank with any of the wonderful experiences we can have with all five of our senses. You can fill in uh, street corn tacos and spaghetti and meatballs if that's what floats your boat. Uh, But you could do sweet honey, you could do food, but think also about the sensory experience of beautiful music or a stunning visual god's word is more satisfying than the most enjoyable sensory experience are you satisfied with god's word without a sensory experience just think for a minute about a worship service suppose we didn't have lights Or instruments? That wasn't a hypothetical last week. Uh, Suppose we didn't have lights, instruments, slides. What if we didn't have air conditioning? Or chairs? What if we had to worship in a room that smelled like a decomposing squirrel? Or was infested with flies, hypothetically? What if you took away everything that was pleasing to the five senses, but all we had was still the word of God. Is that enough? Is that enough to get you in the door? Is that enough that you would desperately chase after the word, even without a pleasant sensory experience? Is the word of God enough for you? Do you remember what Jesus told Satan when he was tempted to turn rocks into bread? He quoted from Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Value God's word. Second, second, Response to God's word, heed God's word, heed God's word. Verse 11, David says, moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them. There is great reward. We see here the reward of God's word and the warning of God's word. Derek Kidner refers to these as the two edges of the double edged sword. That is the word of God, the warning of the word of God on the one hand, the reward of the word of God. On the other hand, scripture is very honest in how it warns against living in disobedience to God's word. It is honest about the curses, the ways that it doesn't go well for people who do not live according to God's word. On the other hand, the Bible casts a vision of flourishing for those who abide by God's word. Psalm 119.1, which begins 176 verse Psalm, delighting in God's word, says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. The Bible paints a picture of flourishing for those who walk By God's word. David no doubt had in mind uh, specifically the blessings and curses that are outlined at the end of the law of Moses in Deuteronomy. Uh, Moses gets finished repeating for this new generation who has come out of the time of the wilderness. Uh, He repeats for them the complete law, the old covenant, the covenant that God made through Moses. And at the very end, in Deuteronomy 28, Moses outlines the blessings for those who obey God's law, who keep it, and then also the curses for those who break it. Uh, He ultimately comes to Deuteronomy 30, and he says that I am putting before you the choice of life and death. God's word warns, and God's word rewards. We have this continue into the New Testament. Turn back with me to Romans, but in chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, and see the two edges of the double-edged sword, which is the word of God. Romans two, starting in verse six, he will render to each one according to his works to the one who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and flir- and excuse me, wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. The Bible lays out for us in bright light, in clear speech, this path of following God, a path that leads to reward and flourishing. But the Bible is also clear that those who would rather live by their own thoughts, their own words, their own will, their own desires, that the end is wrath and fury. The end is destruction. The pathway is difficult, It is a life that is going against God's will for his creation. So you just need to know, as you think about what God has spoken in his word, that to live a life disregarding God's word is a life that will end horribly for you. And so we go to the third response of God's word which is to deal with sin according to God's word. Deal with sin according to God's word. Let's turn back to Psalm 19. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, we see David tells us how God's word exposes sin and leads to cleansing. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. That term hidden faults refers to uh, what is taught in the law of Moses about sinning unintentionally. There's this whole category in the law of Moses about sinning unintentionally. You know, sometimes our sins, our errors um, are hidden. Uh, sometimes our sin has become such a habit we don't even see it as sin. Sometimes we want to do what is right, but we don't know what it is and we unintentionally sin Even though we had good intentions, on the flip side, sometimes we do the right thing, but we have the wrong intentions and we don't realize that that's sin too. There are all sorts of ways in which we can have hidden faults where we can sin against God and do so unintentionally. But the truth is, even though though our faults might be hidden to us, God knows every flaw. God knows every fault. And at first, that might seem really intimidating and scary. I mean, I'm a sinner in ways that I don't even know it, but the one I'm accountable to does know all the ways that I'm wrong that I don't even know about. But the reason why that's good news is because that God who knows every way we have Faulted is also the God who has made a way for us to be forgiven of every one of our sins. God has made a way for those who are guilty of hidden faults to be declared innocent. In the Old Testament, the passage that introduces this idea of sinning unintentionally is Numbers fifteen twenty-two through thirty-one, and it introduces the subject. Because it is giving instructions about what kind of sacrifice God's people ought to make in order to atone for their unintentional sins. God made a way for his people to be cleansed of their unintentional sins. To be declared innocent even though they were guilty. And of course that sacrifice points forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The lamb of God, the innocent one who was blameless, who had no need to have errors discerned because he had no errors to discern. Yet the innocent one, Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life, even though he deserved the rewards, all of the blessings of life that come from obeying God's word. He took on himself the death, the curses that we deserve for our sins against God. And by doing so, Jesus, the innocent one, made a way for the guilty, like you and me, to be declared innocent, like he is innocent. Do you realize the extent of Christ's work to save sinners? He died to forgive us of sins. To forgive us of all our sins. To forgive us even of the sins that we didn't know were sins when we did them. That is how far his work reaches. You know, some people who come to Jesus, they, 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 they have this burden of, of knowing that they're a sinner. They want to trust in Jesus. They, they want to be forgiven of their sin. They want to be made right with God. And, and so they get to work. Uh, you know, I, I did this back then, and I, I did this the other day, and I did this at that place, and I did this with that person. And, and, and they go through the catalog of all the ways that they're a sinner, and, and they want to be made right with God. And they think, oh, but did I forget something? Was there something that I did that's a sin that I didn't confess? Because, you know, the Bible says we need to confess our sins. And hey, if I covered it all, And if I don't confess every single sin that I have ever done, will he forgive me of the sins that I haven't confessed? But here's the good news of the gospel. To come to Jesus, all you have to confess is that you are a sinner and you don't even know how bad you are. And you can trust that Jesus' work covers it all. While your sin goes far deeper than you even realize, Jesus' grace goes infinitely farther. This past week in our home, we had a, a small ant infestation. Our grass is all torn out, and they decided to. Uh, since we tore up their home, they would come invade our home. And uh, so the other night, it just became clear. Okay, I've got to. I got to do something with these ants. And so I got out this spray insecticide, and um, you know these ants had bit my kids. So I was. I was not about to give them a proportional response. Okay, I, I wasn't. I didn't mist them. With this insecticide. I drowned them in this insecticide. I mean, there was like a river of insecticide through our kitchen, which is probably not sanitary, but regardless, we have not seen an ant since. Let me tell you. When you trust in Jesus to forgive you of your sins, he throws those sins into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins are many. His mercy is is more that is what christ has done for us but not only does god's word help us with the sins we have already committed look at verse 13 keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins let them not have dominion over me david not only wants to have the errors he's already committed discerned so that he can be declared innocent from hidden faults. He also wants to be kept back from sin, protected from further sin. Dalen prayed earlier through the Lord's prayer. That prayer doesn't only say, forgive us our debts. It also says, lead us not into temptation. We want to be forgiven of the sins we have already committed, and we want to be protected from sins we haven't yet committed. This is a prayer for protection, especially against being dominated by sin, having sin as our master. Uh, Presumptuous sins are are sins that are committed from a a hardened heart, one that arrogantly disregards God and others. David uh, knew what it was like to be kept back, protected by God from sins. For instance, in... um, 1 Samuel 25 uh, talked about this story a lot recently, but where David was going to kill Nabal, who had dishonored him. And he was doing so uh, really unlawfully. He was doing so out of anger, out of pride. And God used Abigail, Nabal, Nabal's wife, to intervene and stop David from killing Nabal. Well, David says in response to that, "I praise God for keeping me back from doing this that I should not have done. That's what David is praying that God would do more of. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And the good news for those who are in Christ is that if you are in Christ, sin cannot dominate you anymore. Romans 6.14 says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Jesus has freed us from slavery to sin and freed us to be slaves of Christ. Then look at verse uh, the end of verse thirteen, and after all of this, after wanting God to discern his hidden faults, declare him innocent, keep him back from presumptuous sins. The effect of all this is ultimately he says, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. This is the conclusion. Uh, that he comes to about the effect of God's word on his sin. These blameless words of God, again, lead to a blameless servant. Now, again, though, it's not a blameless servant in the sense of being sinless. uh, What this word of blameless means is whole, complete, uh, having integrity, being wholehearted, having a life where all the pieces fit together and don't contradict one another. When we bring our sins to God and he cleanses us when he answers this prayer to protect from presumptuous sins, it leads us to a life of integrity, of blamelessness. Well, finally, one last response. The only last fitting ultimate response to God's word is to glorify the God of the word, to glorify the God of the word. We want to value God's word, heed God's word, deal with sin according to God's word. And we want to glorify the God of the word. Look at verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The words of my mouth are the things I say to others. The meditations of my heart are the things that I say to myself. And there uh, is a very close relationship between those two things because whatever words come out of my mouth first started as a meditation of my heart. Jesus says in multiple places in the Gospels, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. David gives this final prayer because he wants his words to bring glory to God like the words of the heavens declare the glory of God. He wants to please this creator God to whom all creation must answer. He wants to please the God who is his rock, his strength, his security, his salvation. He wants to please this God who is his Redeemer, who has freed him from slavery to sin. This is the ultimate prayer of the one who knows the value of God's Word. This is the ultimate prayer of the one who has been cleansed from their sin. This is the ultimate prayer of the one who has been invited to know the God who put the stars into space. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The creator has told us how we can know him and how we can glorify him. And we can know him and we can glorify him through Jesus Christ. And because of his death and resurrection on our behalf. Because the anointed King Jesus took the curses that we deserve for our sins and has given us his righteousness and declared us innocent, we can know the God who created the universe. And as we close our service today, we are going to come to the Lord's table, which celebrates Jesus' work on our behalf the work that made a way for us to know God and enjoy him forever.